Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario could soon make it illegal for your boss to bug you after hours. Policy introduced yesterday in the new labor legislation is called the right to disconnect. If passed, what could it mean? Well, we'll talk about that. According to a report from CIBC, more parents are gifting money to their adult kids to help them afford down payments for a house. Now, that may not be surprising, but the amount of money is eye-opening, to say the least. Benjamin Tao, the Deputy Chief Economist for CIBC, joins us with all those details. And, of course, we'll also get reaction to the Trudeau Cabinet announcement today. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about this piece of legislation that's uh, being proposed uh, right now by the uh, Ford government. Uh, and it's got to do with uh, something we've talked about, the, the right to disconnect. Uh, we know that uh, during the pandemic, a lot of people from working from home, and there's a, a concern in many circles about the fact that, well, when do you unplug and say, okay, I'm not at work anymore? It's, uh, it's pretty difficult. Uh, something that could make achieving that work-life balance a little easier for those. Uh, the province is now introducing legislation that includes a right to disconnect. Sandy Salerno has some details. A right to disconnect rule is something some countries like France already have. And now Ontario wants to see something similar implemented here. If the bill is passed, companies with 25 or more employees would be required to come up with a policy that would pretty much spell out when workers are expected to and not expected to answer emails. Whether it's setting out-of-office replacements or turning off devices, the message is simple. When you're off the clock, you're off the clock. Labour Minister Monty McNaughton says Ontario can't be a province where people burn out from endless work and family time comes last. Everyone should be able to unplug at the end of their workday because people are more than their jobs. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So let's talk about the implications of this. Uh, and to do that, please do welcome back to the program, Jerry Dias. Jerry, of course, is Unifor National President. Uh, Jerry, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure is always mine, Bill. Jerry, I got an observational question for you, first of all. Uh, this is the government that not too long after they, they assumed power a number of years ago, uh, they, they basically canceled the minimum wage increase that was scheduled. Uh, they threw the, uh, the, the, the living wage program out the window. Uh, they didn't allow the paid sick days proposal that was uh, uh, sitting there from a previous government. And now you've got the government talking about, well, we want to make this easier for the workers with right to disconnect and uh, non-compete clauses. <laughs> Which is the real Ford government here, Jerry? Well, let's just hope that they woke up and <laughs> realized the errors their way. So, this like, is an epiphany for them people then? Make a mis- when people screw up or make a mistake or, or eliminate good legislation, they hear it from me. When they introduce something that benefits workers, then, I'm gonna, then I'll give it a positive spin. So you're right. I mean, the first thing they did was they scrapped Bill 124, which was probably the first major overhaul of labor law reform in this province in a generation. So that was a real slap to workers. Uh, today, there, you know, Monty McNaughton, the minister, uh, introduced legislation last week, uh, introduced new legislation this week. So there's no question they're trying to, uh, to say to working-class people that, you know, we're not the two-headed monster that we have historically been. So I guess we'll see at the end of the day if this is a straight uh, based on an election a year down the road or, or if they're serious about uh, taking their head out of the proverbial sand. Do you look at this as, uh, given the past history, let's face it, between this party, especially when they're in power, uh, and, and Labour seem to have had a rather acrimonious relationship over the years. Is, is this an olive branch then to say, no, we're, we're not that bad, we're, we're on your side? Well, I think they took a look at the federal election where Aaron O'Toole 
ran as a, as a right-wing conservative and took the leadership of the party with the support of Jason Kenney and others. And then he ran on a platform of a pro-worker agenda. And everybody kind of looked at Aaron O'Toole like he had two heads. Nobody bought it. So I think the conservative government in Ontario is saying, hey, if we wait to the last minute to hand out all of the branches, it'll be seen as disingenuous and nobody will buy it. So who knows? I mean, at the end of the day, look, if a conservative government introduces legislation that's good for working class people, then I'm going to say thank you very much. We'll take it because Absolutely. history has shown that it's never been that way. So I'll take it if I can get it. Were, were you or any other folks in the labor organizations consulted on this, or was there any input here? Were you guys at the table when this was being talked about? No, not at all. But uh, the minister called me the day before he introduced it to give me a heads up uh, to say, here's what I'll be introducing tomorrow. So were we a part of the consultation process? The answer is no. Uh, but was I given a heads up? The answer is yes. Well, as with any piece of legislation, uh, whether it's labor legislation or anything else, uh, as we've talked about, Jerry, the devil's always in the details as to how this is going to roll yep. out. Uh, you've had a quick uh, opportunity here to, to glance at what they're proposing right now. What's your first read on that? So philosophically, it makes complete sense, and I and I support what is trying to be accomplished. But you're right, the proof is in the pudding. How are you going to do it? Um, look, things have changed in so much in a short period of time. If you look at it, back five years ago, about 4% of Canadians worked remotely. Today, it's about 32%. So it, we, we went from when the pandemic hit to uh, philosophy of working from home. Now we're living at work. And that may very well be the norm for the long term. So what does that mean now? Uh, what does that mean for uh, women uh, and opportunities and um advancement in the workplace because let's be candid we can consider ourselves progressive males but women still hold the un unfair burden of chores around the house as it relates to children as it relates to household duties so if women are disconnected while at home because of their responsibilities and men stay connected because they share an e uh, unequal burden who gets advancement so th these are issues that we need to talk about but ultimately we know that people that you know, are working remotely from home. You know, their rates of exhaustion are much higher. Stress is much higher. It's tougher to shut off in the evening. So in philosophy, it makes total sense because what happens when you're working into the evening, night after night after night, are you getting paid overtime? The answer, of course, is no. So there's different expectations today than there were, you know, even pre-pandemic as to being on call 24-7. Uh, so there's, uh, today I will say the burden on working class people is even worse than it was pre-pandemic. And like some of the other things we've talked about, well, almost for the last two years now because of the pandemic, uh, it didn't necessarily create this problem, but it certainly shone the light on this. I mean, because a lot of the stuff you've just talked about, Jerry, existed before the pandemic. Yeah, look, workplace stress, we're preoccupied with work. Uh, it's trying to shut off is becoming increasingly worse. Worse, I mean, with the introduction of the various technologies, we're completely connected. I think about, you know, even 15 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, I, I would I would call into my office and get my messages and then I would make my calls when I had a moment. Today, you get a phone call, it's on your cell phone, you're responding immediately, you get a an email, you're supposed to respond immediately. So all of a sudden, it's a question of instant gratification. It's, you know, if somebody doesn't call back or I don't call back within an hour, all of a sudden, that's where the hell have you been? I'm supposed to thank you for calling me back the next morning when I've got all my messages. So technology has changed how we work. And frankly, physically and mentally, we're not keeping up with the change. And we need to. 
there's a you mentioned compensation, which I think is is got to be a key part of the conversation here. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, gee, I'm I'm working into the evening, uh, maybe every night, maybe some nights, and. Uh, the other element to this is, okay, that may be necessary because of the nature of the job. I mean, there's so many different jobs being done remotely now. But what about compensation? I mean, is that even addressed these days? Or is there an expectation uh, between employee and employee that, look, at when I call or when I email, I, I expect a response uh, right away? Well, look, if, if, if an employee is expected to be on call and is working staggered hours over the day and the night, they should be compensated. I mean, a company shouldn't get a free ride. It's expectations, like I said earlier on, have changed during the pandemic. I mean, people are working from home. The employers, by and large, are now saying, I'm adopting that model, which means I will sell my real estate and I'll introduce a new model. But but with the introduction of a different model, there's different expectations of which they're expecting people to work and not be paid uh, during evening hours, which doesn't make a sense of sense. So I think the legislation, you know, really is about how do we start to condition society as to what is now, you know, proper. If uh, if I send an email to somebody at eight or nine o'clock at night, that's not that critical. Does the person have to respond immediately, or is answering in the morning fair game? And I'm alarmed that responding in the morning is fair game. Um, we don't need, like I said earlier on, instant gratification twenty four seven. I mean, there's some things that are priorities, and some things, frankly, can wait till tomorrow morning. There has to be a life balance. People are being burned out, and the only way I would suggest uh, to change uh, the focus on how we do work is by increasing what we do at home as it relates to quality family time. I know there's a phrase that uh, Minister McGotten talked about here called a charter of good conduct, uh, which which makes all kinds of sense. And the, the way I kind of interpret that is have that discussion uh, and say, look, it, you know, we're doing more. I, you, I, you've got to be available because of the nature of the job, whatever that job might be. It could be any number of different things. Uh, but we're going to compensate you fairly, or you're going to get more time off or something like this. Or, hey, uh, I'm going to send you an email at 9 o'clock at night, but it, it's not going to say I want an immediate response. Hey, you know, like tomorrow morning, let's not forget to do this. Well, that's that's that doesn't require an immediate response. That's just, okay, that's a reminder. We get those all the time. But that it's, it's really a matter of open discussion, I guess, about what's right and what's wrong and, and understanding that there have to be some parameters, and maybe not everybody does that. Well, look, there are, there are people based on, different responsibilities, whether it's family responsibilities, um, that during regular working hours have to take care of those responsibilities. So we'll use some evening time, um, you know, to, to catch up on some emails or some work that they missed during the day because they were doing different things. So there has to be flexibility built into whatever it is we do. Um, we have to, above all, utilize a lot of common sense about how we move forward because no two workplaces are the same. Uh, no two situations are the same. So there really has to be a common sense approach to how we do it. But ultimately, the preoccupation has to be what is critical and what is not. And everything is not critical. And we need to change how we respond and frankly, how we expect people to respond to us. Like, I'm the worst. I send emails at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. I send emails at 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. I'm a, I'm a workaholic. And I'm sending things out to my staff and to local union leadership at, at ungodly hours. But the question becomes, do I expect for them to respond? And the answer is no. Respond in the morning is fine. But it really is about conditioning for everyone what's acceptable. 
Well, exactly. And, th- and there's no one size fits all that, that's going to fit province wide here. That it's right. going to depend on, on, on the, the work that you do, or the, the, the kind of relationship you have. And, and by the way, the size of the company too, I know that the proposed legislation here uh, is for people with 25 employees or companies rather with 25 employees or more uh, for situations like that. So it, it, if nothing else, this is going to engender a discussion. Uh, and to their credit, as you say, this is the first jurisdiction in Canada that's even attempted to do this. I know that in France, they've had it in play for a couple of years. Uh, with some variations, and, and it seems to be working there. But uh, it, as we say, as we get some of the details on this, it's going to be interesting. There's one other aspect of this, Jerry, I wanted to ask you about uh, that kind of surprised me because it's something that's been a, a pain in the butt for an awful lot of people. Uh, they're also uh, proposing uh, to ban non-compete clauses for employees, yeah. which is something that I never thought was fair. Uh, for those who don't understand the concept, it basically means that when I sign on with company A, uh, the non-compete clause says I can't go to work for company B. If I leave here to go to another company, I have to wait six months or a year or maybe never at all. Uh, and they throw these things in here. Uh, I, I think it's useless because I don't think anybody, the company's ever challenged it. If somebody said, the hell with you, I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, but to get it out of the system altogether and just say, don't even put it in, in the work agreement, I think makes all kinds of sense. It makes complete sense. I mean, it really is about suppressing opportunities for working class people. It's about taking away options. Tim Hortons is the worst. We've got about 4,000 franchises in Canada, over 100,000 employees, and they have non-complete clauses that I can't go and work for another Tim Hortons. So here I'm renting uh, because I'm a low-wage worker in a fast food place. I moved to another community because my rent is cheaper. There's a Tim Hortons across the street that can't work at it because there's a deal between the franchise owners that we're not going to hire former or, or, or current Tim Hortons employees. It's completely ridiculous. It's a way of keeping wages down. It's a way of, frankly, inserting control. So it's, it's, it's completely preposterous that companies can put into place a situation where I basically own you. If you leave, you cannot work for my competitor. That's outrageous. Like, and this is supposed to be a thriving democracy, right? So I completely applaud uh, the introduction of the legislation because, above all, it's just plain wrong. Well, it's it's it basically what you do is it's encouraging, as you mentioned, servitude. You know that you can't move. I mean, you know, we we bemoan the fact. Remember, you know, professional sports teams used to have that. You know, if you signed with the Maple Leafs, you couldn't go anywhere else unless the Maple Leafs traded you there. Uh, and and unions came along, and and you know, we busted that stuff up, and that's happening. But that was the idiocy of it. I mean, the way they've done that now, you know, in other words, a guy that plays for the Leafs and says, okay, I'm going to go play for Detroit now, can do that at the end of the contract. Uh, it, but with Tim Hortons, you can't. It doesn't make any sense at all. So I, I applaud that. Now, is it your understanding this is going to be a part of the legislation that McNaughton is introducing, or is this a separate bill? Yes. Yes. So I, you know what? I, I'm not sure exactly how they're going to proceed with it, but I understand that. Uh, they're going to pass some legislation to make it illegal in order to put into place a non-compete agreement. So, like I said, I applaud it. So it's, it's like I said, I spent a lot of time criticizing the Ford government from a whole host of things, starting with uh, their initial cancellation of Bill 124. But like I said, like you got to be fair and you got to be balanced. If somebody does something you disagree with, you criticize them. If they do something that you agree with, then you say thank you and applaud their their judgment in that regard. Well, and as I see this, I think what this is going to do is encourage that dialogue uh, with employee and employer. And there are a lot of companies that are doing this already that do compensate fairly. And yeah. they, they say, look, I know I'm going to have to ask you to work, but, uh, you know, there's there's compensation. You know, the, the, the bills paid or holiday time or bonus situations. I mean, some of them are, are, are quite good at that. And, and they're to be applauded for doing this. But, but for those who may be, you know, dragging behind here right now, 
uh, when this legislation passes, I mean, it will the onus will be on the the, the employer uh, to to develop this charter of conduct uh, based on, I guess, that dialogue with the employees. It makes all kinds of sense to at least get that conversation going. So there are going to be standards, and the standards for Company A may be different from the standards of Company B, but at least they, there yeah. will be standards, and that's the important thing, I guess. Yep, no question. I mean, but having the employer design the, the policy, like I said, it sounds fundamentally great, but the practical reality might be non-existent. I mean, it's like having Colonel Sanders taking care of the chickens, right? So we'll see how it ends up, but at least we're having the debate, and that's a heck of a good start in all our view. Absolutely. Uh, Jerry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You have a great day. Take care. You too. Jerry Dias, uh, who, of course, is the uh, Unifor National President. And, and and it's it's an interesting idea because we've had a lot of conversations since uh, the pandemic and since a lot of folks are working from home, working remotely now, uh, and they're talking about burnout. And we've, we've talked about the mental health aspects of that, and, and it can be onerous uh, and because of what's happening. And, you know, mental health issues are bad enough, but they can also lead to some serious physical injuries uh, as a result of, uh, of that kind of stress as well. So I get where they're coming from on this. And, and again, you know, we don't want to paint everybody with the same brush here because there are some companies that treat their employees very well and, and compensate them very well and say, look, this is the nature of the job, uh, but we're going to make sure that you're looked after and that there's going to be time for you to, to just decompress at the same time. So uh, once this passes, like any piece of legislation, uh, the devil's in the details and whether or not it can be enforced. And it's already, I, I guess, uh, being enforced by some employees and some employers already in, in many companies. Uh, but if you've got some concerns, well, I guess there'll be a piece of legislation here that uh, you can use as a foundation uh, for those discussions. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just getting a house in any community is difficult these days because of the, the soaring prices that have happened over the last little while uh, and availability of stock. Uh, Tim Hudak, who is the CEO for uh, the Ontario Real Estate Association, was on our program a couple of weeks ago now uh, to discuss the housing affordability crisis and how people now are not just looking outside of major cities, but looking outside of Ontario if they because they can't afford a home here. Here's what Tim had to say. We found an alarming number of people. Uh, almost 50% are those that are 45 and under have looked outside of Ontario for a home just because they can afford it. It's the only reason driving them away. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, like you mentioned, were the top ones on the list. I mean, that's our future leaders, right? That's our future entrepreneurial talent and job creators hightailing it out of Ontario because they can't afford a home for their families. So how do you address this lack of affordability that's going on right now? I mean, I look at Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are lovely places, but uh, we'd like to retain uh, people here in Ontario. Uh, you need money, uh, a lot of money, to be able to put a down payment down and be able to afford a house. Well, according to a report due to be issued uh, this week by uh, CIBC Economics, uh, parents gave their kids more than $10 billion in down payment help over the last year which was about 10% total of down payments over that period. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Benjamin Tal. Benjamin is the Deputy Chief Economist with CIBC. Uh, Benjamin, uh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We, we knew that this was going on, and, and we knew that the, you know, the bank of mom and dad, I think, as you've referred to in our previous discussions, uh, was a factor in this. But this is a staggering amount of money. Yes, uh, we knew it's happening. We didn't know how big it was. So we looked uh, at the situation more closely and the numbers are huge, uh, especially in places like Toronto, Vancouver, you know, the expensive cities. But clearly the trend is up. Uh, about uh, 30% of uh, first-time homebuyers are getting help from their parents. And the uh, average amount is about $80,000. But if you look at the other factors, it's not just first-time homebuyers. It's also... 
mover uppers, you know, where yeah. the gift is much more significant. In places like Vancouver, it's about $300,000. That's a big, big gift. Yeah, that, that bears repeating, by the way. The average gift is, is about 80000 uh, for first time, or as you say, upwards. There's there still, at least, I like to think that people still think there is a, a progression in housing, isn't there, Benjamin? Where you, you know, let's face it, if you're younger, you usually buy what they call a starter or fixer up or whatever the case might be. Uh, but maybe if you start a family or, or you know, your financial situation may improve uh, and you're looking for something maybe a little bit bigger, something, maybe a different neighborhood. Even getting into that second tier, even though you're already in the game, could be problematic because of the, the price differences that we've seen now. Exactly, because a 10% increase in a house that is $1.5 million is much more significant than a 10% increase in a house that is, let's say, seven dollars or $800,000. So you need to close the gap. How do you do that? You call your parents. Where's the money coming from? Where do mom and dad have the money? <laughs> That's a good question. So there are a few things happening here. Remember, first of all, the baby boomers that are the parents, they are the givers. This is a very wealthy generation, relatively speaking. They are doing well. They are doing much better than their parents. In addition, uh, their parents uh, are getting much older. They are in their 80s and 90s. I mean, the parents of the parents, of the givers. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we all know that they die and uh, provide a significant inheritance. We have hundreds of billions of dollars uh, moving to this generation of the baby boomers. The baby boomers are doing fine. The parents are doing fine. So what happens is that this inheritance is skipping a generation, if you wish, and going to the kids. And that's a source of this money. Yeah, and I, I, I know that I look into the numbers here, and it's not as if the, you know, it's not opulence here, but uh, there was a, a perfect storm of things happening for baby boomers, wasn't there? As you say, uh, inheritance maybe from parents, uh, uh, life insurance policies uh, that, that maybe were non-existent in past generations or people couldn't afford them or didn't think about them, uh, and there are those sorts of situations now. Uh, you know, there are, I guess, other opportunities right now, too, you know, uh, uh, mortgages, different mortgage situations right now. Uh, and and the money, in other words, money is available to them. Disposable income is available to them. And how many times have we heard these stories about, yeah, we cashed in part of our insurance policy and gave the kids some money. Uh, and they, they look at that as if it's a matter of fact. But this is a rather new phenomenon uh, to the extent that it's happening, to the degree that it's happening. That's exactly it. And there is a, an addition factor, which is COVID. You know, we know that uh, we are all, or a significant portion of the population, are sitting on a mountain of cash namely uh, spending went down dramatically, but the vast majority of uh, Canadians did not feel financially the impact of COVID. In fact, their income went up during COVID. So your income goes up, your spending uh, goes down dramatically, so your savings rises, and that's exactly what we're seeing. The parents are sitting on this mountain of cash, and they're saying, you know what, part of it can go to the kids. So that's one aspect. But of course, what it also means, and that's very important, is that the wealth inequality gap is widening because if you are in a position to get this gift, you are in the housing market and you are able to participate in any price appreciation of the future. Also, if you get a gift, every dollar of this gift is reducing your mortgage amount and therefore reducing your interest payments on that mortgage. So unfortunately, this is widening the income gap or the wealth gap in Canada. 
simply because not everybody has this opportunity. There are still the haves and have-nots. And, uh, you know, uh, our sympathies to the people that don't have the opportunity, they may their parents or whomever, uh, the bank of mom and dad just doesn't have that kind of resource right now because they basically, I guess, get left behind. Those are the ones, I guess, Tim Hudak was talking about, Benjamin, that, that are looking now to, to Nova Scotia or to, to Halifax or in Nova Scotia or to New Brunswick, any place uh, instead of Ontario, uh, because affordability is, is not just a big city problem anymore, is it? Absolutely. And it will continue to be the case because we are not dealing with the main issue. You know, parents are helping in different ways, not just gifting for down payment. We, we have seen a significant increase in um, parents assuming the debt or co-signing on the mortgage. That's another factor that is happening. Another thing is those investors, you know, all those people that are buying condos in Toronto, uh, you know, many of them are in negative cash flow. They are basically losing money. And we said, you know, why are you doing it? And they say, you know, the reason why we buy those condos, it's not to make money, it's not to replace a GIC, it's not a, even an investment. It's to make sure that 10 years from now, when my kids are older, they will have a place in Toronto because otherwise they will not be able to afford it. So it's really long-term thinking and it's just not just about flipping or anything like that. I've heard of this, and this is, this is again, something that I, I found fascinating, and it's happening more and more, where they'll, they'll buy a property, it could be a condo, it might even be a house, uh, if they have that kind of uh, financial resource. And, and you're right, they may rent it out for a few years uh, until their kids are of age, and then say, okay, fine, we're not renting anymore, we're going to gift it to them. Uh, it's, it's a long-term investment, but I guess, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess, with families, don't they? Exactly, because when people think about uh, investors, especially in the condo space, what they have in mind is flippers. Oh, people get into the market to make easy money and to flip it or to basically make money out of the rest. No, I think that more and more, and we talk to a lot of people, focus groups, we get the sense that um, the number one motivation is actually the realization that this market will continue to become unaffordable and will get even worse in terms of prices. And therefore, if you can afford it now, get into the market and buy some insurance for your kids to be part of this market. I think that's a, a very important motivation now behind investment activity in the condo space in places like Toronto. Benjamin, you've been tracking this for a number of years, and, and a couple of things I wanted to, to point out here that you've uh, discovered in, in your research here. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, mom and dad have been contributing uh, for a number of years, but uh, even back to 1915, uh, 19, 2015, rather, I should say, uh, a lot of them received this money, but it was, as you mentioned, their average of fifty-two thousand. Uh, now it's up to eighty thousand on average. Uh, is that reflective of the, the the housing price boom that we've seen? Yes, if you look at the correlation between the average size of the gift and house prices, it's basically one hundred percent correlation. So when the prices go down, and it doesn't happen very often, as you know, uh, the gift goes down, and when it goes up, it goes up. On average, gifting actually has risen faster than uh, average uh, price. So basically people giving more than the increase in the value of the house. So clearly there is a correlation there, no question about it. Yeah, and that's one of the other things that I found fascinating about this. In other words, the gifting is actually at a higher rate uh, than the price of housing itself. And I, I guess, is that reflective of the competition now? Every time a house comes on the market, you know, we'll see bidding wars in some situations like this. And I, I guess, you know, mom and dad want to make sure there's enough money in the pot for them to be in that game. Exactly. So the question is, to what extent this correlation between gifting and house prices is more than a correlation? And actually, actually, there is some causality there, namely to what extent gifting 
is leading to some higher inflation in the housing market. I suggest at the margin, yes. Of course, gifting is not the most important factor. The most important factor is supply or the lack of supply. But uh, clearly, I believe that uh, given the size of gifting and the fact that uh, one-third of um, first-time home buyers are getting it, means that uh, there is an element of uh, increased uh, pressure on house prices due to gifting. Uh, I know you've talked about that in previous discussions, and it's, uh, I'm sure you're aware, uh, Benjamin, it's a hot dis- topic of discussion in the Hamilton area right now because uh, there's a debate going on about uh, expanding the urban boundary to accommodate future growth. And uh, there, there's a lot of arguments on both sides of this, of course, you know, about you know, farmland, et cetera, and, and preserving farmland, green space that we have here in Ontario, and the green belt. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you, you've talked about this, Tim Hudak has talked about this on our program, and it's, it's, it's housing stock. Uh, and it's a matter of supply and demand. If there aren't enough houses on the market and there's a lot of people that are looking for houses, it's like anything else. The price is going to go up. And, and that hasn't been the only factor, but it's certainly been a contributing factor in where we are now, hasn't it? Absolutely. You know, 10 years ago, I was uh, in a um, symposium in New York, the IMF symposium. Uh, you know, Greenspan was there, uh, Myron Schultz, a Nobel Prize winner in economics was there. And the topic of this discussion and debate that I was participating in was short Canada, sell Canada for those investors. Why? Of course, because of the bubble in the housing market in Canada. That was 10 years ago. Since then, house prices in Canada went up by 85%. Because people who were thinking that we are in a bubble misunderstood the source of the issue, which is the lack of supply in the country as a whole, and clearly in Ontario, uh, in places like Vancouver. So I suggest that uh, the only way to deal with the affordability crisis, and it is a crisis that we are facing, uh, is to deal with the supply issue. We have to speed up this, um, the process of releasing land, land that is, has been released, but just speed it up. And I think that uh, the, for the first time, the uh, federal government is admitting that there is an issue here when it comes to supply, and they are willing to provide municipalities with some money to do so. I hope that will work. We have to think about density. We have to create supply in a way that we haven't been, done before, because we get... 410,000 new immigrants a year, and this number will rise. So demand will be there. We need the supply. What about variety, though, when it comes into this? Uh, you know, th- there's different housing stocks. I mean, you know, we can talk about high-rise. We can talk about, as you mentioned, condo living. Uh, there's there's, there's, uh, there's townhouse developments, condo townhouses. I mean, variations on that theme. Single-family residential. And we're not talking monster homes here. We're talking about, you know, three bedrooms, uh, maybe an unfinished rec room. There's something that they can work on. Uh, I'm, I'm finding an awful lot of people are saying, look, I want choice. I, I want to live in Hamilton or I want to live in London or whatever the, the city may be. Uh, but I'm not going to live in a townhouse. I'm not going to live in a high rise. I want a house. I want a backyard for my kids. Uh, and if I can't find one that's affordable here, I guess I'm going to look at places like Nova Scotia. Uh, is it incumbent upon us in, in, in one of these communities to supply that variety, that choice that, that they can have so they can find something that's going to suit their particular needs? Yes, yeah, to the extent that we can do that. Uh, listen, I think that one of the reasons why we have a affordability crisis, it's really an affordability due to preferences. You know, if everybody was willing to live in a condo or in a high rise, then affordability wouldn't have been an issue because you can simply build more and more and more because you can go up. But of course, that's not what people want. And I totally understand that. So given preferences, we have shortage. We know that. 
One way of dealing with the situation, and it's starting to happen, is innovation. If you look at innovation across the, the country in different industries, real estate is the last one in terms of innovation. Nothing happened. We are still building the way we built uh, 15, 20, 30 years ago. We know that we have the technology, and there is a wave of new startups that are starting to think about innovation in real estate in a way that uh, will create a, a cheaper, more effective way of building to accommodate more people without really changing the landscape. So this is something that is happening. I believe it will grow very fast because when you are desperate, you need solutions and innovation is the only way to go. What's the message here to people that are not the baby boomers yet, Benjamin, but uh, are listening to this right now and say, whoa, is this what I'm expected to do now? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm got it. You know, we, we went through the recession in 09. I mean, my pension plan was, 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 you know, affected by that. I've got to get savings. I've got to save for my retirement. And now I'm, I'm expected to, to have money for my, my son or daughter's down payment for their house too. How am I going to be able to do this? I mean, is I, I'm thinking a lot of people right now are going to think, boy, that's an awful lot of pressure. Uh, cause I'm going to have to do this. Uh, and, and, there may be some legitimacy to those concerns because uh, there doesn't seem to be an end to this problem in the in the near future anyway. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that this is an issue because we are sensing that there is a growing pressure on parents to participate. I think that um, clearly don't get into debt. We looked into it and we saw that only 5% in Canada, uh, about 9% in uh, Ontario, uh, use debt to finance the gifting. I think that's fine, but not more than that. I don't think that people should get into debt in order to help their kids because then they're risking their retirement. I think that uh, if the gifting is too much, don't do it. I suggest that um, the new generation that cannot afford the house will have to think about renting as a solution. And I want to create a situation, as I told you in the past, that you are 35 years old, you are married, and you have two kids, and you are renting, Nothing is wrong with you. But in order to do it, you need rental properties. You need what we call purpose-built rental, not condos, but purpose-built. If you increase the supply of them, uh, renting will be more acceptable. And I believe that renting should be and must be part of the solution to the affordability crisis that we live in. And, and that was an option for generations, wasn't it, Benjamin, until I guess about 15, 20 years ago uh, when there was a dip in, in, in desire, I guess, in, in, in the demand for rentals. And, and what happened then, a lot of property owners that own these places actually asked them to, to be converted into condos because that was a hot market. Uh, so now we've got a problem. It's, it's like when you start messing with the balances here, uh, you create some long-term problems. Now we don't have enough rental stock. Absolutely. And you look at places like New York, Berlin, London, everybody's renting there and it's acceptable. And that's part of uh, the situation. I think we have to go back to it again. I don't think we should just maximize home ownership for the sake of maximizing home ownership. Not everybody has to own a house. If you have a reasonable way uh, of renting and if you have enough supply and you can choose and live in a nice place, rental activity can be part of the solution. And therefore, I will encourage the government to stimulate and encourage and provide incentives for purpose-built rental in order to increase supply in that space. Very important discussion and, and of course, fact-based discussion and, and the facts supplied by CIBC and the work that you're doing on this, Benjamin. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Great to get uh, your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. A pleasure. Thank you. Benjamin Tal is the uh, Deputy Chief Economist with CIBC uh, and the author of this study. And, and he's absolutely right. I mean, 
do we hear a lot about this? We've talked about affordability. We've talked about availability. In other words, is there enough housing stock? But uh, what about rental properties? Because that should be an option for some people. Uh, not everybody is, is going to be cut out for home ownership, depending on their own particular circumstance. But there has to be rental accommodations and rental stock available for that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister has announced his new cabinet. Uh, they'll all be sworn in uh, moments from now, of course, at Rideau Hall in Ottawa. Uh, but we got the list now. We find out who's going to be where. And uh, some surprises. Uh some veterans, of course, have, have been maintained through the cabinet. Uh, some new faces as well, as usually is the case. Uh, joining us to talk about this and the implications uh, going forward, Dr. Laura Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of School and Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, great to have you on the show on a very busy day today. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Let me, off the top, any surprises? The one that jumps out to me is Mark Garneau, who's not in cabinet at all now. Yeah, I was sort of wondering, like, given... Um Given everything that's happened and the fact that, you know, four women who had been in the previous cabinet weren't coming back, I figured he's going to have to make some serious changes, you know, and part of getting people in is going to have to probably mean taking people out unless you want a cabinet with like 50 people in it. And so I wasn't super surprised. And I'm wondering, too, whether there might be something for Mr. Garneau, sorry, on the horizon, um, you know, him being... He's obviously perfectly bilingual. He's an astronaut. He's been in government a long time. I wonder if he makes sense as a diplomatic post somewhere. The rumor I'm hearing is is ambassador in France. I, I don't know how, that's right. if that's legitimate or not, but it would seem. Uh, but is there even a possibility that he asked to be out? I mean, he's he's been a member of cabinet uh, for as long as the prime minister, as long as Justin Trudeau has been in, in cabinet. But uh, is he actually part of the inner circle? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the the list and, and just sort of having a look at the, the faces around that room. And there's a lot of people who Trudeau really knows and trusts and have been with him a long time and have been kind of personal friends of his. And it seems like that's one of the things that's, that's really prominent to me in this cabinet. And it's not that he doesn't know and trust Garno. It's just that, yeah, like, I mean, Garno's from a different generation. He's, you know, he's, he's not somebody that, that has kind of been with Trudeau his whole life in the same way. And so I wonder if, there, if I have no idea what kind of conversations the prime minister and Minister Garno, former Minister Garno would have had, but it seems it's possible that he might have been looking for another challenge at this point. And goodness, like, I wouldn't blame him if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, to your point, I mean, people like Seamus O'Regan uh, is still there. He's Minister of Labor now. Uh, and uh, a number of other folks, Dominic LeBlanc, who's been a longtime family friend, of course, is still there. Minister of Government, Intergovernmental Affairs, which is pretty much the same post that he had before. Uh, and, and some familiar names. Which that's not unusual, though, is it really to, to, you know, have the people in your inner circle, people that you know and trust and have known for quite some time? Oh, I think it makes sense, right? Like, I think... Um you want to have people around you, especially like he is a minority government prime minister. Um, this is a, you know, he, this election was about him making a bid for a majority government that didn't pan out. And so I wouldn't blame him if he thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in my third mandate. I might be looking at my last mandate. And so who do I want around me who I really trust to move these files forward that I want to be able to build as legacy pieces. And you can see, um, you know, it's pretty clear to me when you look at who he's appointed, where, He's not like this is not going to be a weak focus group kind of cabinet. And sometimes people say that like it's, you know, cabinet is just kind of another version of the house now and the prime minister's office controls everything. And you know what, when you, you take those arguments to their extreme, I think it, it just kind of creates blind spots and it, we don't understand as well as we should. 
I think you look around this cabinet and there are some strong, experienced people here. He put Pablo Rodriguez in heritage because he wants Bill C-10 to go through and he wants a strong communicator who can take that file and work with stakeholders and build legitimacy around it. That was You and I have talked about that a lot, Bill. That is a tough yeah. one. And and Rodriguez is a proven team player. I mean, he handled you know mm-hmm. as house leader, he handled some pretty tough times uh, trying to get some legislation through. And he's a he's a bulldog, and you need people like mm-hmm. that, I guess. And LeBlanc, I think, falls into that category too. Uh, some new faces, though. Let's talk a little bit about some of those. Uh, the one that jumps out here. Well, there's a few of them, of course. That, that you figured uh, when you were talking to us last week. Uh, that, that he had to find room for, Sean Fraser being one of them, and he is now the Minister of Immigration. Uh, Marcy Ian, uh, who we would know in this area, of course, as a longtime broadcaster, uh, is uh, is in cabinet now. She got one one elected in a by-election, of course, and and then, of course, was re-elected recently. Uh, and she's at cabinet. Is that a surprise? It doesn't surprise me a whole lot, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, given the fact that she came in on a by-election, that would have been a little tricky for him, I think, to, to build her into cabinet at that point. But it could have been that this is somebody who he's wanted to be in cabinet, you know, to begin with. And when we think back in 2015, one of the signature moves of, of Prime Minister Trudeau was to recruit these star candidates who he really, you know, kind of had a personal connection with and wanted to bring forward as leaders. And we saw a lot of them be brought into cabinet in 2015, including Christian Freeland. I think it's possible if Marcy Ian had been in that cohort, she would have ended up in cabinet at the time. And so I'm not surprised to see her at all. Uh, one of those uh, folks that he had talked about uh, and actually, I guess, did try to get to run for him was last time was, uh, was uh, of course, Stephen Jobot, uh, who's in cabinet now. Uh, even when he was, I guess, courting uh, Mr. Jobot to run for the party, and he, which he did, of course, and won in the last election, too. Uh, he was known as a very staunch environmentalist. That's not the portfolio mm-hmm. he got initially, but it's where he, I guess, wanted to be. And now he is the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. That's not really a surprise, is it? It's not a surprise, but I do think that it's quite significant because one of the things that the Prime Minister has indicated he wants to make real progress on, and I think he's under a whole lot of pressure, even right now, right? Like as they're, he's kind of moving toward heading to Glasgow soon. He's got to, you know, he's he's got to figure out how to deal with climate change, and he's got to, you know, he's talking about making promises that he wants to keep that he's that are part of global agreements and relationships that we have with other countries, and so I think to make this appointment uh, now is very important because this, you know, this is Gilbo's career, right? Like he is an environmentalist. This is what he is. This is where his credibility is, and so he's going to be somebody who takes a very strong approach in that file, I think, and somebody who will give you know, concrete advice to a, to the prime minister and also someone who is going to want to maintain his own reputation, right? Like he's got such a personal investment in it that I think it's, you know, it, it sends a clear message from the prime minister that he's made this appointment. When you look at some of the key factors here uh, and some of the key indicators here, as you mentioned, the environment's right near the top of the list. Uh, Truth and reconciliation is another one. Uh, Mark Miller has uh, basically been reappointed Minister of Crown and Indigenous Relations. He, he had that file of variations uh, for the last little while. Uh, mm-hmm. interesting choice, uh, which I guess is really kind of an endorsement of the work that Miller's done on that portfolio already during some rather t- tough times. Yeah, I mean, like, he, this has been a, obviously, like, to say it's a difficult file is just too much of an understatement. Like, this is not a file. This is, you know, a, a major, major issue and set of issues that we're moving through as a country and that the prime minister has signaled is, you know, he, he said that his relationship, the government's relationship with Indigenous people is the most important relationship to him. So it's a huge amount of trust, I think, that he's putting in Mark Miller. And Miller, I think, has performed very well in, in, in this role. Like, it's obviously an extremely difficult one. 
But even when he's had to go, you know, and speak to the press about times that the government hasn't been able to keep his promises, and I'm thinking specifically about the promise regarding getting rid of all of the boil water advisories, he's not a talking point guy. Like he kind of, he sits there and he takes it. And he's, he seems to me to be someone who takes a very authentic approach to communication at a time where we, we script too much. And so I'm not surprised to see him um, maintain, you know, stay where he's at. Speaking of difficult portfolios, uh, the one that everybody was watching, of course, was was National Defense, Minister of National right. Defense. Uh, Harjit Sejan is out of that portfolio, probably to the surprise of nobody. Uh, yeah. Anita Anand is there, uh, who I thought really showed some, a, a lot of, of strength in Moxie uh, in, during very difficult times when it came to uh, vaccine procurement and things of this nature. That was a, that was a hot button issue for her. Uh, earlier this mm-hmm. year, and, and I, obviously the way she handled it uh, impressed the Prime Minister, and now she has a very, very tough portfolio in national defense. She does. I mean, again, like you and like everybody else, nobody's surprised to see a, a shift there, and I, th- I think it was absolutely necessary. I don't know how that would have been the story of the day if Sajjan had stayed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see the shift now. Um, no surprise that it's Anita Anand, given how successful she was in terms of the vaccine procurement. And, you know, I think she's made a reputation for herself as someone who's a clear communicator, she's serious, she's hardworking, and she gets things done. And so the government needs to show that it is absolutely committed to making progress in this, in this area, and it is very, very difficult. But I think for her, you know, like she's, she's going to take, um, I mean, we'll see what's in her mandate letter, but I think she's going to take the report that's going to be coming up. She'll look back at the Deschamps report. She'll, this is somebody who I think lays down a methodology and then puts it through. There's has been discussion and accusations, of course, about old boys clubs in the Canadian military, uh, about uh, accusations that were shoved under the carpet. Uh, let's get into the gender issue. This is another uh, gender equal cabinet, of course, as the prime minister promised. How important was it for to, uh, the prime minister to have a woman in charge of the, the defense portfolio at this stage? I think it was important for a number of reasons. I think from, you know, kind of right off the top from a symbolic perspective, as you say, you know, to try to break through that, that kind of, you know, tradition, not a good tradition of an old boys club, you have to, I think it was essential for the prime minister to put a woman in this file so that you can, he can show that he understands that and that he's bringing a woman's perspective to the kinds of difficult questions that we're facing. And also, um, she's not part of that military hierarchy, and Sajin was. And so she really is a fresh face on it. And I think that's to the, to the prime minister's credit. Um, I think also just in terms of how she sees things, how she understands um, the story she hears, what the problems are. I think she's taking her perspective. And as a lawyer as well, like she's, she's got a really interesting perspective on the kind of challenges she's going to have to deal with. And so I think, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what her first steps are. Because again, this is not going to be a this is not going to be an easy fix. This is not going to be a quick fix. This is we're talking about organizational reform and reform of the military, which you know, as we know, has been, you know, kind of tends to, as you say, sweep things under the rug, keep things internal. How much civilian, how much government accountability are we going to be able to, you know, how, how much are we going to be able to unpack an organization like this that tends to be so insular? Interesting about uh, her role in this. By the way, and you, I know a lot of people would think, well, that's unusual to have a woman in that portfolio, and it is. And uh, historically, I think the last uh, f- woman in in that portfolio was Kim Campbell, uh, which is going back quite a few years. 
uh, during the Mulroney days, I guess. But uh, I think it's an interesting choice. We've had the pleasure of having uh, Minister Anad on the program a number of times in her old portfolio. And uh, you're right, mm -hmm. she's she's a, a straight shooter and uh, and yeah. somebody who I think is, is, is up to the task in here. Uh, a lot of familiar faces. We knew Christia Freeland was going to maintain finance. And of course, as Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Lametti is still back in Justice and Attorney General. No surprise there, I would think. Oh, not at all. No, I think it would, you know, the, I think he really wanted that file, like leaving aside everything that happened around SNC level and how all of the, you know, what the chronology was around that. Um, I think he's, you know, that was where he wanted to be in cabinet. And I certainly didn't anticipate any kind of a change there. Minister Fels, Johnny Duclos, uh, by the way, locally for folks in the Hamilton area, Karina Gold from Burlington, uh, Minister of Fa Families, uh, Children and Social Development. And uh, Philomena Tassi, the former Labor Minister, is now uh, Minister of Public Service and Procurement, uh, which is essentially one of the old jobs that Anita Anand had had us here. Uh, a lot of the new faces that you talked about uh, earlier uh, are found in a place. We, we've talked about some of those folks already, uh, including uh, an, an interesting story with Randy Bosino, uh, who is now the Minister of Tourism and Associate Minister of Finance. Uh, it's, it's important to have representation in Alberta. We all know that. But Alberta was uh, an unusual story this year, and uh, and, and his story is unusual. He was elected, then lost the election, and his back again. Uh, and, and it's going to be, I think, a strong voice for Alberta, a strong liberal voice, which is much mm -hmm. needed, I guess, uh, given the, the rather acrimonious relationship between the premier of the province and, and the prime minister. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think given the fact that the liberals managed to elect a couple of people in Alberta, that was a definite win for them as compared to 2019 where they elected no one from the province. And so, and yeah, I'm not surprised at all to see Boissonneau there. He was in his, the first time when he was an MP, he was a special advisor to the prime minister on LGBT, LGBTQ2 issues. And though not a minister, uh, not somebody who was inside that room, he was somebody who was kind of had a direct line to the prime minister on that issue. And so the prime minister had already signaled, you know, this is somebody he trusts. This is someone whose advice he, he takes to heart. And so not surprised at all uh, to see Boissonneau at that table. Uh, lots to come on this, uh, of course, in the days and weeks ahead as we watch some of these files unfold. And, and as you mentioned, uh, Doctor, especially people like Anita Anand in defense, uh, I, and uh, certainly with the Aboriginal Affairs, uh, I get to work this afternoon right after the swearing-in ceremony because you they're bet. very, very active portfolios and there's a lot going to be happening there. Uh, busy, busy day, and I really appreciate you taking some time to give your assessment on this. Thanks so much, Doctor. Thank you. Have a good one. Great having you on the program. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And uh, and by the way, the Maritime Province is uh, well represented in the new cabinet, too, with a couple of new faces. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.